Welcome to the Keith Law Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. This is episode 69, nice, of the Keith Law Show. And I am extremely excited to be joined by one of my favorite novelists today, Jasper Ford, author of the Thursday Next series, the Last Dragon Slayer series, Shades of Grey, Nursery Crimes, Constant Rabbit, Early Riser. I think I got them all. Lots of great books. I've been talking about him for years. Hopefully you've checked out one or two of his books. If not, I'm sure you will want to after this conversation. It was great. I have written one thing for The Athletic, for subscribers to The Athletic, since the last time we spoke. A long scouting post uh, summarizing a bunch of minor league games I'd been to recently, including some former five former first-round picks, I believe, were covered in the post. Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green from the Tigers. No Dylan Dingler. He had the night off. I can't believe it. Cade Cavalli from the Nationals, Greg Jones from the Rays, Jordan Westberg from the Orioles, and several other prospects. I also ended up, I don't usually do a lot in the comments under these posts, but people asked some pretty good and I thought um, somewhat universal questions that I think I was able to help answer. And just judging by your responses in the comments, uh, it seemed like you agreed. So thank you for that. Thank you, thank you for reading. Thank you for uh, weighing in in the comments and letting me know I was actually doing something useful for a change. I would also like to remind everyone to check out my book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, out in paperback this past April. I will have another post up for subscribers to The Athletic probably at the end of this week, looking at which teams did the most to improve their farm systems so far this season, which would include both the trade deadline as well as the draft, you can feel reasonably confident that the Cubs will appear somewhere on that list. I really liked what they ended up doing at the trade deadline this year. And finally, I do have an email newsletter. It is irregular. I basically send one out when I've got something to say, um, which is sometimes, but not on any regular schedule. So you won't get too many emails from me. But if you're interested, you can go to tinyletter.com slash keithlaw. And for folks who sign up this week, I'm going to do a board game giveaway. I ended up with two review copies of the new game Juicy Fruits from Capstone Games, which I'll be reviewing later this week at Paste. Also, it's a really, really great family game. My daughter and I have played it several times. We love it. And since I got two copies, I asked Capstone if they would let me just give one away to one of my newsletter subscribers. And they said, sure, absolutely. So uh, if you are interested... Feel free to sign up for the newsletter. I will also send out an edition later this week so you can check it out and see if you want to actually stay a subscriber after I have finished this giveaway. My guest today is the great Jasper Ford, the author of 16 novels, including the Thursday Next series, the upcoming The Great Troll War, which is due out in Europe in September, and The Constant Rabbit, a standalone novel which arrived here last winter. You can follow him on Twitter at Jasper Ford, F-F-O-R-D-E. He comes to us from Wales. Come on, beef. Jasper, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. So let's begin. Um, as an Englishman in Wales, have you made any attempt to conquer the local language? Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm actually I'm actually married to a Welsh a Welsh lady, and she is a Welsh speaker. So oh, I wow. kind of, and my both my daughters because we, we because I live in Wales, and we go to school in Wales, and uh, Welsh is spoken as part of the curriculum. So um, so I do have Welsh speakers in the house. So I kind of should, you know, really should learn it. But um, I kind of have too much on my schedule at the <laughs> moment. And and you can be you can be Welsh and live in Wales and not speak Welsh, um, mm-hmm. really, you know, at a pinch. 
Um, and I'm, I, I like to kind of hope that I, eventually I might be Welsh, but I kind of think I'm, you know, this is my adoptive nation. So no, no, I haven't conquered the language, sadly. Oh, good. I want to ask you then to explain how the soft mutations work, because I have been trying oh. to learn bits of it. And it, it is, that part has lost me. Oh, it is, it is immensely complex. Um, and I mean, I, I, I'm just getting, I'm just getting my sort of my, my, my sort of my head round pronunciations. And I can mm. generally, I can generally figure out most pronunciations, uh, but they're kind of, they're kind of tricky. But uh, yeah, no. Yeah. Once you get that, the, the clinically. Oh yeah, you did, yeah, you did good actually. Yeah, clinically. Thank you. Yeah, Thank yeah, you, you have that. Yes. There's a very sort of sound to it. Yes. Um, all My wife speaks weird, it. Or... Weird and lovely, beautiful yeah. sounds. It's a fantastic language. It really is. Fantastic. Yes, I do. I love listening to it, both spoken it at any, even like 75% of native speed. I have no chance. I can do the, the Duolingo app and slow it down a little bit and then I can follow. But uh, I have a feeling at some point we will go to Gardith and visit relatives and I will say, um, nope, sorry, I didn't catch any. Can we can we switch to English now? It's, so. Isn't that great that you have actually Welsh speaking relatives? That's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, well, my wife was born here, but speaks six. Her parents were both born in Wales, and her mother still speaks some of it. And then many cousins there, the younger cousins, as you said, they teach it in school now. Yeah. So, the, yeah. you know, that generation, then younger, they're all learning it. So it's great. So when we've done like family Zoom quizzes, yeah. uh, some of them will slip in some Welsh here and there. And it's great because I get that moment where I'm like, I got that. I, I, uh -huh. I understood those uh -huh. three words there. And that was, that's all. Yeah. Then the moment passes. Of hmm. course. Um, so uh, let's talk about some of your uh, recent books. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I loved The Constant Rabbit. And uh, I've always found your work to be satirical in nature anyway, but often more towards the um, silly side. And I say that as a compliment, whereas The Constant Rabbit seemed more overtly angry at the targets of your satire, or at least maybe more pointed with the satirical elements that the book itself was designed to satirize our current moment is that a fair interpretation of the at least what you had in mind when you created the work um yeah i think so i mean you know all my light satire before this clearly isn't working um and <laughs> you know so you have to ramp it up a little but yes. also i think we find ourselves um you know uh or myself you know uh speaking here you know for obviously my nation my politics it is is that a lot of it it seems to be sort of pre-satirized at inception that you can't satirize it you know we live in a in a post-satire <laughs> world um and I, I i call it the constant rabbit is an unsubtle book for unsubtle times um and i think nowadays um that if you've got something to say you you can't really beat around the bush subtlety doesn't seem to to function as as it used to you know ah look at that you know strange little whimsical you know, comment, you know, that alludes to something. I, I, I don't think that really kind of works. I think you've just got to go in there and say, this is what I think and this is what I feel. And, um, you know, well, to hell with it. Um, so, so yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I referred to it as, as my Brexit anger book, actually, mm -hmm. um, for, for many years. I'm not, I'm not sure whether that is, there's a lot more in it than, than just issues about that. But I, I think Brexit certainly over here in the, in the UK, and for, for those of us who did not support it, which I wish I didn't, um, it was, it was sort of, um, for me, I definitely felt that there was a, it would have revealed parts of the, uh, British slash English, maybe English character, 
um, that um, that we've been trying to hide for a while about um, isolationism and uh, exceptionalism and a kind of rewriting, if you like, a, a sort of looking at our past and saying, you know, well, I think actually, you know, all that kind of empire stuff, you know, why can't we sort of hark back to that a bit? You know, and go it alone, and be this sort of, you know, this this island anchored off the, the the coast of Europe, having nothing to do with it, and wanting to be our own selves, and and carving our own identity, and all this complete and utter nonsense. Um, and I find that very worrying. Uh, and then when you start looking at that and and questioning, you know, my my upbringing, because I was born in 1961. Um, so really, it's you know, I mean, that's what. You know, 15 years after the the last war ended, and and being brought up then in this post is very post empire in that time, and about British exceptionalism and how you know basically you know we won the war and being brought up on war movies and all that kind of stuff, and after a while you you start thinking, mm, yeah, was this actually was this actually correct? Was this the, the correct way to educate anyone? And of course it isn't. Um, because uh, you can't just teach the good stuff you've got to teach the stuff that's dodgy as hell as well and we have uh, the British you know we have a lot of dodgy as hell history uh, which, which <laughs> you know we? if you're going to move forward you've got to look at it you know it's, it's you can't just go oh wasn't it wonderful you know White Cliffs of Dover and a Spitfire oh fantastic you know you know, that's the bit we're going to remember. You go, no, that's that's not what we should remember at all. So, um, yeah. so yeah, it was there was a lot of anger and a lot of stuff that had just been bubbling away for a very long time, and it just sort of came out, and there it was. There it was. Yes, yeah, and I found that you know, obviously, UKIP is one of your targets, um, mm. very, very very transparently, but you can simply correspond. There, there, it corresponds here to the rise of Trump. The I mean, what you just described about not wanting to teach the dodgy bits, we are having this absurd battle here over critical race theory in schools, which they're not teaching in American kindergartens. I don't understand why people are protesting something that isn't actually happening. But the idea that you do not want to, it's American exceptionalism. It's the same thing. This idea, no, America's great. We are the manifest destiny, take over the continent, take over the world. That is, why would you say America is anything but the greatest nation? That's what we need to be teaching our children. And that um, you know, I am of the opinion that you teach the whole history, the good and the bad. And as you said, we you know, what is true of England is true. We are your, uh, you, you know, your former colonists, and we've taken a lot of that. We've done a lot of the bad stuff too, which we learned from watching you, mm. apparently. <laughs> yes. yeah. So I did want to ask. Um, so why rabbits specifically? And I do love what you did because yeah. it also lended itself to lent itself to quite a bit of fun wordplay. I think it was leprophobia. Mm. Is xenophobia? I hope I said it right. Yeah, yeah, leporophobic. Uh, that is actually a thing. There is actually a, it's kind of the dread fear of rabbits, but I didn't make that up. The leporophobic oh. is actually Oh, a I thing. credit it yeah. to you. If you go, oh, <laughs> rabbits, you know, furry, <laughs> long ears, I hate them. Get, yes. Yeah, you're leporophobic. Um, all phobias have have a name with them attached. To them, I, it's, it's someone in it's someone somewhere obviously sort of sat down and sort of just made made them all up one day, you know, and had some Latin and Greek to, to have. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think rabbits were great in that um, they just sat so well as the the demonized um, other as a kind of proxy, really, to all the, you know, human groups that have been the um, that have been the targets of discrimination over the years. Um, because it, the rabbits, uh, we have a very complicated relationship with not only rabbits, 
not only other animals but also with other humans and i think with um with rabbits it's great because we have a we have a sort of a rather rather worrying prior relationship with rabbits and of course when you're making a when you're anthropomorphizing a an animal you you bring obviously you make them human and that's amusing but you also bring some of the attributes of the animal you know into that into that mix which again works really well and i mean it's very interesting that um you know the strained relationship in the past that we've had with with rabbits is is there's pretty much no way in which we haven't murdered rabbits that we haven't also murdered humans you know which is kind of worrying um but also the language uh, which is used with with rabbits when we don't like them is like a pest plague mm-hmm. a vermin you know and these these words are used um by humans against humans to you know just try and demonize you know the 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 groups um but when we when we like rabbits of course we use different words we use use cute and cuddly and fluffy and furry and indeed if you if you like want to go out and murder rabbits you know to get rid of them because you're eating your crops then no one will turn a hair and you can quite often um you know be applauded for it for doing so but if you try and kill a pet rabbit you could probably find yourself in court and that's just <laughs> so unbelievably bizarre even in its 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 own its own case but i think um, you know choice of rabbits worked really really well just because of that strained relationship and and also um the tropes about um that is often used you know in by a, an oppressor um against a discriminated group can so easily just flop into rabbits which is like you know well they breed you know and, and mm-hmm. you let one in and all of a sudden they're going to start breeding and then you know they're going to take over and before you know it you know we'll be doing what they do which is having you know a vegan a sort of you know aggressive vegan agenda and <laughs> and the rabbits in my book have their own religion um which is you know seems quite fair actually and then we'll, yes. we'll all be we'll all be you know um uh, worshipping with you know lego the rabbit god and then it's it's the end of you know the end of britain as we know it so all that kind of stuff just really sort of clues in to the scare stories and the tactics the scare tactics used by people with a very very clear discriminatory agenda so rabbits just um just work i mean they work so mm-hmm. well they really do um there's a there's a I, there's a rather lovely little <laughs> sequence where um uh let's let's uh, well give, give people an idea of what happens in the book sorry should we actually should say so so the book basically begins um really what's happened uh, in like 1965 is that 18 rabbits are spontaneously anthropomorphized overnight they're six foot tall they can they can read they can um, they can write they can drive cars they have all sorts of you know interests that humans have but they're also very large rabbits and it's now 2022 and there's 1.2 million of them in the UK mm-hmm. and the ruling um uh party the united kingdom the united kingdom um anti rabbit party or ucarp as they as they're known who've clearly got power on an anti rabbit rhetoric ticket have decided they want to rehome all these 1.2 million rabbits in for their own safety um in a huge mega warren in wales you know which is which is you know very good of them you know for their own safety yes. they have to be put in this <laughs> fenced off enclosure and that's kind of where the the story sort of begins um and my character peter knox uh, lives in a little little village in the middle of middle england and everything's fine he doesn't consider himself leporophobic 
in the least. Uh, he works for the Rabbit Compliance Task Force, but if he didn't do it, someone else would, and you know, he gets a pension and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then, um, and then some rabbits move in next door, and you know, and then the fur sort of starts to fly because they he knows Mrs. Rabbit Connie. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the villagers say, look, you you know them, you knew her, you know, try and get them out, you know, here's some money, so if you can buy them out, and if you don't buy them out, I'm sure there are other ways we can get rid mm. of them. So there's this quite a nice sequence where um, Kent, who's, they have these odd names, Kent Kent Rabbit, who is the, the son of Connie, um, he, he's describing how he has all these um, anti-burrowing laws, which which are meant, obviously, to apply to humans as well as rabbits, but clearly only apply to rabbits because <laughs> rabbits are the only ones that burrow. Um, and mm. there's just endless laws against things that rabbits do, you know, uh, and, and and everything. So it, it's, it just works. I just, I don't, I, don't, I really like it. it. It works so well with rabbits, I must say. Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Mm. I actually, I liked it. It really lent itself well to that. Mm satirical elements yeah. that I was uh, that I was referring to. Another of your standalone novels, and I know I've, you and I talked a little bit previously about some of your novels. You start them as standalone, they become series. But Early Riser strikes me also as one. It's very extremely self-contained. Mm. I don't know if you intended to visit revisit that world. But one thing I found that really stood out about that one, just set for uh, listeners who don't know, it's set in an alternate timeline where humans hibernate and sleep is thus valued very differently, very highly. Um, but I noticed also that the text there, your descriptions of the world were substantially darker and it gave the whole novel, it's still funny all your work. I feel like you're the type of writer who probably couldn't not be funny, couldn't not inject humor. Um, and yeah. now talking to you for, for a few minutes, I can see why. Yeah. Um, but I mean, again, was that sort of, were you trying to set a different tone? I mean, does this just, just sort of my textual interpretation here, but that the color seemed more muted. Obviously, a lot of the novel takes place at night. Also, it's set in Wales, so it's gray a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. That may just be appropriate to the setting, but it seemed like you were trying to say, no, this is a little different from the rest of my worlds. The rest of my worlds are sort of madcap and silly. This one is not grim, but just darker. Mm. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, Early Riser, this is... Um... The, yeah, the sort of strap line or, or narrative dare I gave for myself with this was mm -hmm. um, uh, write, a, write a thriller set in a world in which humans have always hibernated. Um, and, it, and when I have little ideas like that and I go, OK, I don't think this has been done before. I mean, humans hibernating. Mm -hmm. And and the fun bit with this is we've always hibernated. So we're different, you know, very subtly, physiologically, uh, emotionally, socially, economically. We everything that's gone in the past is kind of the same you know Shakespeare was still around but he he would have um he would have written his his plays based around people hibernating because he would have hibernated mm -hmm. like anyone else so so that's the kind of the, the basic idea of it um and it takes place uh at uh, during the winter winters are very cold very unpleasant and and I think it was it was me trying to write a story about about uh, humans, humans as a species in trauma, and I kind of think we are a little bit in trauma at the moment. And there's a, mm. there's a sense of pulling up the drawbridge uh, with humans because we have these existential threats. And really, only yesterday, the the new UN, uh, um, the UN climate uh, 
climate emergency document was published, which which is, you know, makes for some pretty frightening reading, I must say. But it's nothing that we don't know and nothing that we haven't learned for 40 years. Um, but it's taken this long for it to reach the, uh, the table of uh, politicians, which is, you know, extremely worrying. Um, mm-hmm. So, so early riser is is I it was really the sort of subtle, perhaps the subtleness about it. It's a thriller first and foremost. I you know I like the characters in it. I like the situations. I think it's kind of fun, but it is it is has been labelled as cli-fi, which is climate fiction. Because um, what what I was writing was essentially um, humans on the way to extinction. That uh, this is not this is not global heating. This is global cooling on a massive scale, and that's the reason that we have. Um, that we have hibernation and and a lot of the action and a lot of what people are thinking about constantly is about trying to make up the uh, the loss rates of death during the winter and that seems to dominate a lot of uh, society's time and thought but I think just as you know a lot of people here now you know we have some a climate emergency at the moment um, and a lot of people aren't doing much about it and a lot of people are kind of pretending it doesn't exist uh, and that's the same in early riser is this is a climate emergency uh, humans are facing extinction, but sort of life is, carries on, and we try to do the best that we can um, as we as we are. Um, and I think because you're writing something that is about slightly oppressive, and the weather is cold and it's dark, then that always that must come into it um, in ways that in my other book I haven't really used the weather or the atmosphere in, in so much in such in such a strong way. And I think it it just adds to the sort of oppressive sense within the book which i which i kind of liked but uh I, mm-hmm. yeah but it, it was it was a standalone is a standalone and i have no i have no plans to write a uh, a sequel i must say but um yeah i kind of i kind of eventually kind of liked it. i didn't like it for a long time that book it was a real <laughs> really hard book to write it took me about three years mm-hmm. usually i can knock a book out in about a year i mean the the, the rabbit book um took me um, about a year and a bit um, but this one was was a hard book to write. But you know, eventually it sort of came out. So I'm not. I don't have a great relationship with it. I don't really want to revisit it. Honestly. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Have you read much other cli-fi? By the way, I've only read maybe two or three books in that genre, no. mostly because I, it's the world is depressing enough in that yeah. particular regard. I, so I don't need to visit it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's the, uh, the thing about entertainment which is what my my books essentially are first and foremost mm-hmm. is escapism you know we want to get away from the you know problems about you know paying the mortgage and you know worrying about the kids and you know the climate and everything else um so i, I mean that's why it wasn't overtly part of you know part of the story i wasn't making a huge point it was just it was just there um but no i haven't i haven't read any cli-fi i must say i think yeah just yeah i don't know I, I like that. That's a very Graham Greene way to describe, right? You're, he always said his most of his books were entertainments. Mm. Then he had the serious, you know, the power and the glory mm. and the heart of the matter. And I'm sort of the, I've read them all. Mm. I like the entertainments better, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, probably me, yeah. right? Yeah, travels with, uh, travels man with my heaven. aunt, you know. Yes, real good, right? Yes. rollicking <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Turns out he had a real knack for mm. that and mm. some of the spy stories and the more serious stuff. It was like, okay, I mean, I recognize that that's good literature but i'll go back to the confidential agent or mm. our man in havana was always my favorite yeah, because yeah. it is it it's absurd yeah, yeah. it's beautifully absurd yeah. yes so good that john le Carre basically rewrote the book and called it the tailor of panama mm. it was almost exactly the same thing yeah sort of homage we call it yes. in the writing profession sure. homage we, we yeah, don't call I, it stealing outright we call it homage, <laughs> homage. just borrowed, right? borrowed. It's, it's yeah. okay yeah. yes 
Yeah. Yes. Um, so we've also waited a few years for the final adventures of Jennifer Strange, mm-hmm. sort of the last Dragon Slayer trilogy, which for folks who don't know is uh, Jasper's uh, series for young adults, um, which I started reading to my daughter when she was probably about seven or eight. Now she's old enough she can read the fourth book by herself. I'm assuming she would no longer. She's 15. I don't think she would actually want me to read the book to her. Who knows? Teenagers are unpredictable. Um but I know originally the plan was for a trilogy and you get to the end of the third book. I won't spoil anything, um, but something happens that opens it up. It's like, oh, no, wait, we're on another cliffhanger here. Mm. So was that, you know, at what point, I guess, obviously it wasn't the plan at all. So at what point did it just sort of organically happen or did you come at some point and say, no, I've got more. I want to extend the series by another book. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I tend to write with, with absolutely no plan at all. Um, I just have my idea, my like narrative dare, you know, like the one about the rabbits or early riser. Mm -hmm. And then I just start writing and just write whatever I sort of, whatever works, you know, I'd have no plan when I'm starting. Um, And I think with, with, uh, with last dragon slayer is the original book was a standalone and there was no, there was no sequel, no nothing. But when, when the publishers very generously wanted to publish it, they said, can you do a sequel? And, you know, I'm not going to say no, you know, uh, I do not wish to for you to publish my book. You know, I do not wish to accept your money. Um, you know, you, of course you say yes. You know, of course I can. And then you start thinking, well, you know, uh, well, what am I what am I going to do? So so I just started started writing sequels, basically. And I wrote one which was, you know, just carried on pretty much where we were. And then I did another one which was more of a sort of quest kind of feel to it. And the big problem about writing books is you know, the, one of the different, one of the hardest things, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes you can dialogue, you know, you can do and you go, oh, that works. And you can do a sentence and you go, well, that sentence works. And that paragraph is quite good. You know, and that chapter is all right. You know, and that chapter end, ending is good, but finishing a book. Uh, and I mean, finishing, not just abandoning, you know, although, you know, everybody says no book is ever finished. It's only ever abandoned, which I think is kind of true. Um, <laughs> but finishing a book in a way that is, um, that is just wraps up everything nice and neatly and for the reader is is a really nice ending where you kind of deliver the goods you've been setting your mm-hmm. setting your reader up for a hundred thousand words and now bang boom there you are the book's finished and it's satisfying and you can walk away and you can close the book and you can walk away and go okay i enjoyed that that was good that was good and it delivered i hate books that don't deliver at the end in the way i hate movies that don't deliver at the end and i think this is kind of very human you know because we don't know how our story ends up i mean that's i put that in uh, in a book years ago where someone who's quite elderly says you know what the worst thing about dying and they go what and they go you never get to see how it all turns out and Mm -hmm. and that's true because (laughs) you know we love narratives you know humans love stories we learn by them uh we entertain by them and we uh we converse with them all the time and we do love a, a good ending we do love a satisfying ending but for all of us of course you know the ultimate big story of how this all pans out you know what do we do do we get to the stars i don't know i'd love to know but i'm not going to find out and that's really annoying um so i think satisfying ends to books are uh, you know really fulfill you know fulfill something in humans that they 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 really really want to get it's just some some sort of closure to a story and to the characters that just finish everything nicely um but finishing a book is hard you know it's very hard to do satisfying and i think out of my 16 books i maybe done it maybe 
maybe four times perhaps it's yeah. very difficult um but then when you do actually have a satisfying ending you go ah oh, no that's that, i really like that it's a really good feeling for 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 a writer but also and this is something i've never done before is that i'm actually finishing a series because i have like three open two open series three open series and i'm closing one the first time i've ever done it and i'm actually having a season finale now we've all had season finales on on TV, which just just do not work. And you can see they just they just want they just want the third season, so they're going to give you a bit of a <laughs> and it and it ends and like there's nothing happens. You know what happened at the end of My Name Is Earl? And you go, no, nothing. We have no idea. You know, it just closed. And you know, we I want to know what happened to them, but we never will. So so finishing the the book was was actually a, very satisfying to me because I liked the ending, but also it managed to make me f- end the the series in a way that's quite satisfying um, because I, I had no idea where the, the series was going to go. And I think that's why it went to the th- fourth book in the end. Uh, so I had to reread everything and then figure out, okay, how can I construct an ending which takes all this stuff that's already happened, which I had no clue about uh, because I mm-hmm. never write to a plan. So it was really just taking out the elements that I thought might work and just trying with this sort of narrative gymnastics to bring it all together, add a few bits of fun and everything like that, and then just close it off nicely. But it was quite interesting because um, because also uh, throughout the whole series, you have these secondary characters who, who have helped Jennifer, your protagonist, down the line. And you don't want to kind of abandon them in book three if there's a book four. So quite often they had little they had little walk-ons in which they could come along, do their thing, help the narrative along, help Jennifer along, and then just bow out very quietly and gently. And that's, you know, that was that's it for you. You know, that's 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 your end as a character. So I was quite pleased to do that. And the people I really enjoyed in the in the series I could actually bring back. So it was it was quite an interesting little um, experiment. Oh, and I, I got to appear myself as well in it. So that was quite amusing oh. as well. Yeah, so I've always wanted to kind of... A little Quentin Tarantino yeah, type. Yeah, maybe something like yourself. that. Um, but yeah, but I actually play myself. You know, he doesn't ever come on as a, as the film director, does he? he no, on no, as no, someone no. else. He tries to act. Yeah, he does. It doesn't yeah. always go that and it, well. It used to work, but it doesn't seem to work anymore. So I don't know what's gone wrong there. But anyway, so yeah, so I had this I had this idea that I could, I could actually insert myself into the book um, because at some point they're told that the, the, the evil person's plan is more wild than they can possibly imagine and this is a bit of a problem for them because if his plan is wilder than they can possibly imagine then they can never figure it out right they'll never be able to figure it out because they can't imagine it so someone says look why don't we why don't we get a a, a, like a fancy author in because they can have all kinds of weird ideas you know and and they go well i know of one and then there i am you know in the book and they they start quizzing me about my novels you know so what have you written you know i've not heard of you you know what have you written i can explain (laughs) you know and i go well sort of nursery rhyme is police procedurals and they go well yeah i think that's been done before anything else you know and they give me a bit of a grilling. They don't treat me well at all. You know, like, yeah, well, who are you? What was, I'm sorry. What was your name again? Which I, I kind of like, but I, at least I get to do a little bit, you know, so I turn up. So, um, well, that's actually a perfect segue to my last question. Mm. Um, so, uh, readers of mine know I've talked for years about this class I took in college, which is 27 years ago. 
Yes, something like yeah. that. Anyway, called Comedy in the Novel. And mm. one of the cl- one of the books, um, it was actually the book that was cut from the curriculum, but he mentioned it. Actually, afterwards, I reached out to the professor and said, anything else you would have included at Swim Two Birds by Flann O'Brien, where the author actually appears as part of the text. One of the sort of great early works, I would, I would say, of metafiction. It's the class that introduced me to the Master and Margarita and... If on a winter's night, a traveler, it also made me reach, read Don Quixote, which I doubt I ever would have done on my own just because it is a lot of, mm. right, what is about a thousand pages, the whole thing together. But I actually read it and liked it, as it turns out. Mm. Um, so, and I posed to uh, listeners, no, I didn't, I'm not springing this on Jasper, I asked beforehand, but if you were going to teach a class like this, set up a curriculum of some great comic novels that you've enjoyed, what sort of books would you include? Mm. Yeah, it's a good it's a, it's a good question actually, and it would be tempting to to do the obvious like um, uh, Three Men in a Boat, uh, Jerome K. Jerome, uh, which is you know yeah. a, a, an early adopter of mine. I remember mm-hmm. reading that when I was very young, and that stuck with mm-hmm. me, and I and I still laugh out loud reading. There's a sequence where he has <laughs> to get a cheese on the train from like Liverpool down to Brighton. Yes. And it's, you know, the, the adventures of this cheese and it's, it's just, it's hysterically funny. It's laugh out loud, funny. And, and books, <laughs> books are difficult to do laugh out loud. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's another section that Bill Bryson in the adventures of the Thunderbolt kid, he has this sequence where his best mate's dad is about to jump off the top board um, in this lake where they go swimming. And it's, you know, it's about seven or 800 words and it is unbelievably funny. Um, so but I think but before I do, I think there's this interesting thing about comedy is that when you're writing comedy, you have this wonderful luxury of a huge build up, you know, writing, you know, laugh out loud stuff is great. Um, but you can also do comedy in two ways. There's a long build up. It's like, you know, the recurring jokes and returning to jokes and stuff like that, which, mm-hmm. which works really, really well. And you can have a long build up. Uh, to a really good payoff you know and that kind of joke will stay with you forever for with a reader will stay forever but if you go to say stand-up stand-up comedy you know and you listen to a stand-up comedian you can be laughing for an hour and a half and two days later you can't remember a single joke so it's this sort of um this low slow you know glow slow burn of really you know, great mm-hmm. memorable comedy, or there's this like, you know, just sort of, you know, sharp forest fires of uh, of stand-up. So and I think that's what you can do in books. And I think, um, you know, someone like um, Bill Bryson, who I mentioned before, I, I love mm-hmm. his writing because there is a, uh, uh, some of it is laugh out loud funny, but there is also a charm and a sparkle that runs throughout his books that explains things in a very lovely sort of very beautiful, very understanding way that it's, it has a wry sense of humor to it, which I really, really enjoy. Um, he, he wrote a book about a summer in 1927 and you would have thought, you know, that would be kind of dull, you know, but it's not, mm-hmm. it's lovely. And he makes it, he makes it really, really good. Um, Catch 22, another good one for comedy. I, again, yes. they're really obvious ones. Diary of a Nobody by uh, Burton Whedon Grossmith, um, the protagonist of which is a, a nobody, literally a nobody, and it's his failed attempts at social climbing in Victorian London in sort of, you know, the 1880s. Um, it's very amusing um, thing. But anyway, so what I... And very short, too. It's short, yeah, it's short. <laughs> it's it's a really good one for, you know, a short train journey, you know, actually really good. Um, but, I mean, two, I'd like to sort of mention that... Um, Mm-hmm. That uh, that are sort of not on people's radar, 
which I thought were excellent. I really, really like them for the comedy. The first one would be um, uh, John Birmingham, who is an Australian writer. I've actually met him. He's actually a really nice guy. Um, <laughs> and he wrote a book called um, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, uh, <laughs> which is a great title. And Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a great title. And, and You had me at Falafel. <laughs> it's, it's basically a character study of humans and um, told through um, house share. So he's he's a, he's the protagonist is essentially running a house share, and it's all the people who come in and all the di- different characteristics of these sort of people and what they get up to and what they do. And it's just this wonderful sort of smorgasbord of strange, weird, unusual characters, all of whom you recognise as someone that you probably know. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. And it's a, it's a great, I think it's a great comedy, a great comedy novel. Um, the other one I'd like to like to recommend, again, as a, as a, a really nice sort of character study, is by uh, a British author called Mill Millington. And uh, the book is called, and I might have got it slightly wrong, but I think it's called Arguments That I've Had With My Girlfriend, which, again, is a really good title. Yes, it is. Yeah, and it's, and it's about him and his and his girlfriend now wife called margaret who is german and she 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 comes across as a very sort of forthright and what perhaps we british would describe as someone typically german but i don't think there is (laughs) but it's about their relationship together and it's it's seemingly an impossible relationship because they just cannot get along but you know (laughs) they do and that fundamentally they love each other very very much and (laughs) it's just I don't know. It it just has a has a charm and a sparkle and a beauty to it. That's about humans getting along, um, about nations getting along, and about this, you know, rather sort of strange and slightly argumentative um, uh, girlfriend that he that he has. But it's it also has the and something that I've I used I've used a number of times I think, and which is a trope that you see quite um, used more and more of the slightly rubbish bloke. Um, the, uh, a protagonist who's not heroic and is not really anti-heroic. They're just a little bit rubbish. And, and, and I think they're much more of an everyman. Uh, you know, it's, it's the antithesis of sort of Jack Reacher. This would be someone who'd, 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 you know, drive into a strange town in a taxi and leave the following morning and nothing would happen. <laughs> it's that kind of person. <laughs> and, and I, and I kind of like that. You know, because it's it's not machismo. It's not about you know that all those classic sort of slightly dull male, yeah. you know, attributes. It's about someone who's just a bit rubbish, but has very strange characters moving past and through them, and how they deal with it. So yeah, Mill Millington arguments I've had with my girlfriend. It's I I, I just sort of I loved it. it. You know, really nice, really nice book. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, I will absolutely read both of those. I've read the other ones. You have not read the Bill Bryson book. I will check that. Yeah, out. that's and, um, well worth it. Yeah, yeah, summer, summer of nineteen. I've read some of his nonfiction. Yeah, summer of nineteen twenty-seven nonfiction. It's uh, it's a tremendous read. I, I I wanted him to do the summer of nineteen twenty-eight, you know, as a sequel, but maybe it wasn't <laughs> so interesting. But um, but great stuff. You just read it and you go, wow, I did not know that. I did not know that. That is so bizarre. That is so bizarre. If I enjoy a writer's prose, mm. it doesn't entirely matter what the mm. subject matter is. I mean, I'm sure there's a limit to that, of yeah. course. But if I, you know, there's certain writers where it's just whatever they put out, I'll just read it. And I might like one more or less, but it's not 
so it is especially for nonfiction if it's just a well-told tale it doesn't actually matter if a whole lot happens i just find i can get sucked into someone's writing yeah. and be very happy and especially you know put me in a small metal tube flying in the sky if the book is good i'll just not notice the time passing some some people just sort of have that knack yeah. um when you and i were talking previously i mentioned connie willis who wrote oh yeah to say nothing of the dog yeah. the her sort of time travel companion to three men in a boat. She's one of those. I've read mm. six or seven of her books. Mm. And um, for a long time, I thought she was English because she's such a good writer. It turns out she's from Colorado. Mm. Um, yeah, you see. Yeah. We, we, yeah, you see. We're pulling, we, we're, a writer's always pulling a fast one, aren't we? Yes. Well, and her time travelers are all set at Oxford. So yeah. it is like there. this is historians at Oxford. That's the only time travel is very tightly managed in this universe and they have to get special permission to do it. And mm-hmm. they can't go back. And obviously they can't change historical events. Anyway, one of her characters in this book goes back and finds the three men mm-hmm. in the boat. Um, and and hilarity ensues, obviously. Mm-hmm. And is very much, it has, this book was only written 20 years ago, but it has mm-hmm. the feel of a comedy of manners of... Mm-hmm. 50, 60, 70 years earlier. So that's, uh, you know, she's just one of those writers where it just, it doesn't matter that not a lot happens. I get sucked in to the prose and her characters are interesting enough and I'm just, I'm good to go. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, three, actually going back to Three Men in a Boat slightly, I mean, it, yeah. it's, it works actually really well because it's, um, if you, if you read it at one level, you could, because every now and again, he, he just reports on what's on the Thames. So you think, yeah. okay, I think this is like a sort of 1400 word guide to traveling right. down the Thames <laughs> and which he's just yes. got bored and sort of right. thrown in these little anecdotes along the way about, yes. you know, people, you know, with boasting about fishes and, and trying to get into a, a tin of meat and they beat it into such an unpleasant shape so that it frightens them, <laughs> you know, which I love. And they're all a bit useless. I mean, they really are a bit useless. Oh, yes. And and, and, I, and I think that's, you know, a lot of it is, is that charm. And I think there's a there's a really good, so almost a vaudeville kind of uh, comedy to it as well, where mm-hmm. where you you're trying to you're trying to tell a serious story, but all the anecdotes that you keep on bringing in actually, you know, make it make it all that more funny. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, there is, there is that charm in it as well. Yeah. And it's in the public domain for folks who haven't read it. You can it usually is. find it free or for a dollar yeah. on Kindle. Yeah. That's how I read it free yeah. Yeah, a while totally ago. Free. Yeah. Eight, yeah. 18, 1881, it was written and it's, oh, okay. Yeah. And it is, it's, it could have been, it could have been written last week uh, and right. all the characters in it. Are so, we haven't changed. As it turns out, we are all still quite useless. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's like Don, Don Quixote, you know, like you were mentioning yeah. earlier, you know, I think I know someone at tilting at windmills. I mean, it's still happening. You know? Yeah, still happening. Yes. It could, it could very well be me. And I just wouldn't even know it like as he did not. Right. No, those are giants. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you were talking about Graham Greene. He did, um, he, uh, Monsignor Quixote um, did yes. this, didn't he? One of his later novels. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. He 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 still had it right up until the last. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My guest today has been the wonderful Jasper Ford. I confess I am a longtime fan. It's been a great honor for me. You should check out his any of his books, but I will specifically mention the most recent one published here in North America was The Constant Rabbit, which although it satirizes what's going on in the UK and Brexit, you can certainly see a lot of the parallels to what's going on in the United States or has been going on here for the last few years. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Jasper, F-F-O-R-D-E. Jasper, thank you for joining me. 
No, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, please go do so. If you're hesitating, there's lots of ways to reach me. I would be happy to try to address some of your concerns. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Law, on Facebook at Keith Law Writer, on Instagram at MR, Mr. Keith Law. And I have been answering vaccine-hesitant people's questions for a long time and combating anti-vaxxers' misinformation for a long time. If you're interested, and if maybe I could help push you towards getting vaccinated, I am happy to spend the time to do so. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and stay safe.